This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. All Things Considered by G. K. Chesterton Section 1 The Case for the Ephemeral I cannot understand the people who take literature seriously, but I can love them, and I do. Out of my love I warn them to keep clear of this book. It is a collection of crude and shapeless papers upon current or rather flying subjects, and they must be published pretty much as they stand. They were written, as a rule, at the last moment. They were handed in the moment before it was too late and I do not think that our commonwealth would have been shaken to its foundations if they had been handed in the moment after. They must go out now with all their imperfections on their head, or rather on mine, for their vices are too vital to be improved with a blue pencil, or with anything I can think of except dynamite. Their chief vice is that so many of them are very serious because I had no time to make them flippant. It is so easy to be solemn. It is so hard to be frivolous. Let any honest reader shut his eyes for a few moments, and approaching the secret tribunal of his soul, ask himself whether he would really rather be asked in the next two hours to write the front page of the Times, which is full of long leading articles, or the front page of Titbits, which is full of short jokes. If the reader is the fine conscientious fellow I take him for, he will at once reply that he would rather, on the spur of the moment, write ten times articles than one titbits joke. Responsibility, a heavy and cautious responsibility of speech, is the easiest thing in the world. Anybody can do it. That is why so many tired, elderly, and wealthy men go in for politics. They are responsible because they have not the strength of mind left to be irresponsible. It is more dignified to sit still than to dance the barn dance. It is also easier. So in these easy pages I keep myself on the whole, on the level of the times. It is only occasionally that I leap upwards almost to the level of titbits. I resume the defense of this indefensible book. These articles have another disadvantage arising from the scurry in which they were written. They are too long-winded and elaborate. One of the great disadvantages of hurry is that it takes such a long time. If I have to start for Highgate this day week, I may perhaps go the shortest way. If I have to start this minute, I shall almost certainly go the longest. In these essays, as I read them over, I feel frightfully annoyed with myself for not getting to the point more quickly. But I had not enough leisure to be quick. There are several maddening cases in which I took two or three pages in attempting to describe an attitude of which the essence could be expressed in an epigram. Only there was no time for epigrams. I do not repent of one shade of opinion here expressed, but I feel that they might have been expressed so much more briefly and precisely. 
For instance, these pages contain a sort of recurring protest against the boast of certain writers that they are merely recent. They brag that their philosophy of the universe is the last philosophy, or the new philosophy, or the advanced and progressive philosophy. I have said much against a mere modernism. When I use the word modernism, I am not alluding especially to the current quarrel in the Roman Catholic Church, though I am certainly astonished at any intellectual group accepting so weak and unphilosophical a name. It is incomprehensible to me that any thinker can calmly call himself a modernist. He might as well call himself a Thursdayite. But apart altogether from that particular disturbance, I am conscious of a general irritation expressed against the people who boast of their advancement and modernity in the discussion of religion. But I never succeeded in saying the quite clear and obvious thing that is really the matter with modernism. The real objection to modernism is simply that it is a form of snobbishness. It is an attempt to crush a rational opponent not by reason, but by some mystery of superiority, by hinting that one is specially up-to-date, or particularly in the know. To flaunt the fact that we have had all the last books from Germany is simply vulgar, like flaunting the fact that we have had all the last bonnets from Paris. To introduce into philosophical discussions a sneer at a creed's antiquity is like introducing a sneer at a lady's age. It is caddish because it is irrelevant. The pure modernist is merely a snob. He cannot bear to be a month behind the fashion. Simply I find that I have tried in these pages to express the real objection to philanthropists and have not succeeded. I have not seen the quite simple objection to the causes advocated by certain wealthy idealists, causes of which the cause called teetotalism is the strongest case. I have used many abusive terms about the thing, calling it puritanism, or superciliousness, or aristocracy. But I have not seen and stated the quite simple objection to philanthropy, which is that it is religious persecution. Religious persecution does not consist in thumbscrews or fires of Smithfield. The essence of religious persecution is this, that the man who happens to have material power in the state, either by wealth or by official position, should govern his fellow citizens not according to their religion or philosophy, but according to his own. If, for instance, there is such a thing as a vegetarian nation, if there is a great united mass of men who wish to live by the vegetarian morality, then I say in the emphatic words of the arrogant French Marquis before the French Revolution, let them eat grass. Perhaps that French oligarch was a humanitarian, most oligarchs are. Perhaps when he told the peasants to eat grass he was recommending to them the hygienic simplicity of a vegetarian restaurant. But that is an irrelevant, though most fascinating, speculation. The point here is that if a nation is really vegetarian, let its government force upon it the whole horrible weight of vegetarianism. Let its government give the national guests a state vegetarian banquet. Let its government, in the most literal and awful sense of the words, give them beans. That sort of tyranny is all very well, 
for it is the people tyrannizing over all the persons. But temperance reformers are like a small group of vegetarians who should silently and systematically act on an ethical assumption entirely unfamiliar to the mass of the people. They would always be giving peerages to greengrocers. They would always be appointing parliamentary commissions to inquire into the private life of butchers. Whenever they found a man quite at their mercy, as a pauper, or a convict, or a lunatic, they would force him to add the final touch to his inhuman isolation by becoming a vegetarian. All the meals for school children will be vegetarian meals. All the state public houses will be vegetarian public houses. There is a very strong case for vegetarianism as compared with teetotalism. Drinking one glass of beer cannot by any philosophy be drunkenness, but killing one animal can by this philosophy be murder. The objection to both processes is not that the two creeds, teetotaling and vegetarian, are not admissible. It is simply that they are not admitted. The thing is religious persecution because it is not based on the existing religion of the democracy. These people ask the poor to accept in practice what they know perfectly well that the poor would not accept in theory. That is the very definition of religious persecution. I was against the Tory attempt to force upon ordinary Englishmen a Catholic theology in which they do not believe. I am even more against the attempt to force upon them a Mohammedan morality which they actively deny. Again, in the case of anonymous journalism, I seem to have said a great deal without getting out the point very clearly. Anonymous journalism is dangerous and is poisonous in our existing life simply because it is so rapidly becoming an anonymous life. That is the horrible thing about our contemporary atmosphere. Society is becoming a secret society. The modern tyrant is evil because of his elusiveness. He is more nameless than his slave. He is not more of a bully than the tyrants of the past, but he is more of a coward. The rich publisher may treat the poor poet better or worse than the old master workman treated the old apprentice, but the apprentice ran away and the master ran after him. Nowadays it is the poet who pursues and tries in vain to fix the fact of responsibility. It is the publisher who runs away. The clerk of Mr. Solomon gets the sack. The beautiful Greek slave of the Sultan Solomon also gets the sack, or the sack gets her. But though she is concealed under the black waves of the Bosphorus, at least her destroyer is not concealed. He goes behind golden trumpets, riding on a white elephant. But in the case of the clerk, it is almost as difficult to know where the dismissal comes from as to know where the clerk goes to. It may be Mr. Solomon, or Mr. Solomon's manager, or Mr. Solomon's rich aunt in Cheltenham, or Mr. Solomon's rich creditor in Berlin. The elaborate machinery which was once used to make men responsible is now used solely in order to shift the responsibility. People talk about the pride of tyrants, but we in this age are not suffering from the pride of tyrants. We are suffering from the shyness of tyrants from the shrinking modesty of tyrants. 
Therefore we must not encourage leader-writers to be shy. We must not inflame their already exaggerated modesty. Rather we must attempt to lure them to be vain and ostentatious, so that through ostentation they may at last find their way to honesty. The last indictment against this book is the worst of all. It is simply this, that if all goes well, this book will be unintelligible gibberish. For it is mostly concerned with attacking attitudes which are in their nature accidental and incapable of enduring. Brief as is the career of such a book as this, it may last just twenty minutes longer than most of the philosophies that it attacks. In the end it will not matter to us whether we wrote well or ill, whether we fought with flails or reeds, it will matter to us greatly on what side we fought. Cockneys and Their Jokes A writer in the Yorkshire Evening Post is very angry indeed with my performances in this column. His precise terms of reproach are Mr. G. K. Chesterton is not a humorist, not even a cockney humorist. I do not mind his saying that I'm not a humorist, in which, to tell the truth, I think he is quite right. But I do resent his saying that I am not a cockney. That envenomed Darrow, I admit, went home. If a French writer said of me, he is no metaphysician, not even an English metaphysician, I could swallow the insult to my metaphysics, but I should feel angry about the insult to my country. So I do not urge that I am a humorist, but I do insist that I am a cockney. If I were a humorist, I should certainly be a cockney humorist. If I were a saint, I should certainly be a cockney saint. I need not recite the splendid catalogue of cockney saints who have written their names on our noble old city churches. I need not trouble you with the long list of the cockney humorists who have discharged their bills or failed to discharge them in our noble old city taverns. We can weep together over the pathos of the poor Yorkshireman, whose country has never produced some humor not intelligible to the rest of the world, and we can smile together when he says that somebody or other is not even a cockney humorist, like Samuel Johnson or Charles Lamb. It is surely sufficiently obvious that all the best humor that exists in our language is cockney humor. Chaucer was a cockney. He had his house close to the abbey. Dickens was a cockney. He said he could not think without the London streets. The London taverns heard always the quaintest conversation, whether it was Ben Johnson's at the Mermaid or Sam Johnson's at the Cock. Even in our own time it may be noted that the most vital and genuine humor is still written about London. Of this type is the mild and humane irony which marked Mr. Pet Ridge's studies of the small gray streets. Of this type is the simple but smashing laughter of the best tales of Mr. W. W. Jacobs, telling of the smoke and sparkle of the Thames. No, I concede that I am not a cockney humorist. No, I am not worthy to be. Sometime after sad and strenuous afterlives, sometime after fierce and apocalyptic incarnations, in some strange world beyond the stars, I may become at last a cockney humorist. 
In that potential paradise I may walk among the Cockney humorists, if not an equal, at least a companion. I may feel for a moment on my shoulder the hardy hand of Dryden and thread the labyrinths of the sweet insanity of Lamb. But that could only be if I were not only much cleverer, but much better than I am. Before I reach that sphere, I shall have left behind, perhaps, the sphere that is inhabited by angels, and even past that which is appropriated exclusively to the use of Yorkshiremen. No, London is in this matter attacked upon its strongest ground. London is the largest of the bloated modern cities. London is the smokiest. London is the dirtiest. London is, if you will, the most somber. London is, if you will, the most miserable. But London is certainly the most amusing and the most amused. You may prove that we have the most tragedy. The fact remains that we have the most comedy, that we have the most farce. We have, at the very worst, a splendid hypocrisy of humor. We conceal our sorrow behind a screaming derision. You speak of people who laugh through their tears. It is our boast that we only weep through our laughter. There remains always this great boast, perhaps the greatest boast that is possible to human nature. I mean the great boast that the most unhappy part of our population is also the most hilarious part. The poor can forget that social problem, which the moderately rich ought never to forget. Blessed are the poor, for they alone have not the poor always with them. The honest poor can sometimes forget poverty. The honest rich can never forget it. I believe firmly in the value of all vulgar notions, especially of vulgar jokes, when once you have got hold of a vulgar joke, you may be certain that you have got hold of a subtle and spiritual idea. The men who made the joke saw something deep which they could not express except by something silly and emphatic. They saw something delicate which they could only express by something indelicate. I remember that Mr. Max Beerbohm, who has every merit except democracy, attempted to analyze the jokes at which the mob laughs. He divided them into three sections jokes about bodily humiliation, jokes about things alien, such as foreigners, and jokes about bad cheese. Mr. Max Beerbohm thought he understood the first two forms, but I am not sure that he did. In order to understand vulgar humor, it is not enough to be humorous. One must also be vulgar, as I am. And in the first case, it is surely obvious that it is not merely at the fact of something being hurt that we laugh as I trust we do, when a Prime Minister sits down on his hat. If that were so, we should laugh whenever we saw a funeral. We do not laugh at the mere fact of something falling down. There is nothing humorous about leaves falling or the sun going down. When our house falls down, we do not laugh. All the birds of the air might drop around us in a perpetual shower like a hailstorm, without arousing a smile. If you really ask yourself, why we laugh at a man sitting down suddenly in the street, you will discover that the reason is not only recondent, but ultimately religious. All the jokes about men sitting down on their hats are really theological jokes. They are concerned with the dual nature of man. 
they refer to the primary paradox that man is superior to all the things around him and yet is at their mercy quite equally subtle and spiritual is the idea at the back of laughing at foreigners it concerns the almost torturing truth of a thing being like oneself and yet not like oneself nobody laughs at what is entirely foreign nobody laughs at a palm tree but it is funny to see the familiar image of god disguised behind the black beard of a frenchman or the black face of a negro there is nothing funny in the sounds that are wholly inhuman the howling of wild beasts or of the wind but if a man begins to talk like oneself but all the syllables come out different then if one is a man one feels inclined to laugh though if one is a gentleman one resists the inclination mr max beerbaum i remember professed to understand the first two forms of popular wit but said that the third quite stumped him he could not see why there should be anything funny about bad cheese i can tell him at once he has missed the idea because it is subtle and philosophical and he was looking for something ignorant and foolish bad cheese is funny because it is like the foreigner or the man fallen on the pavement the type of the transition or transgression across a great mystical boundary bad cheese symbolizes the change from the inorganic to the organic bad cheese symbolizes the startling prodigy of matter taking on vitality it symbolizes the origin of life itself and it is only about such solemn matters as the origin of life that the democracy condescends to joke thus for instance the democracy jokes about marriage because marriage is a part of mankind but the democracy would never deign to joke about free love because free love is a piece of priggishness as a matter of fact it will be generally found that the popular joke is not true to the letter but is true to the spirit the vulgar joke is generally in the oddest way the truth and yet not the fact for instance it is not in the least true that mothers-in-law are as a class oppressive and intolerable most of them are both devoted and useful all the mothers-in-law i have ever had were admirable yet the legend of the comic papers is profoundly true it draws attention to the fact that it is much harder to be a nice mother-in-law than to be nice in any other conceivable relation of life the caricatures have drawn the worst mother-in-law a monster by way of expressing the fact that the best mother-in-law is a problem the same is true of the perpetual jokes in comic papers about shrewish wives and henpecked husbands it is all a frantic exaggeration but it is an exaggeration of a truth whereas all the modern mouthings about oppressed women are the exaggerations of a falsehood if you read even the best of the intellectuals of today you will find them saying that in the mass of the democracy the woman is the chattel of her lord like his bath or his bed but if you read the comic literature of the democracy you will find that the lord hides under the bed to escape from the wrath of his chattel this is not the fact but it is much nearer the truth every man who is married knows quite well not only that he does not regard his wife as a chattel but that no man can conceivably ever have done so 
The joke stands for an ultimate truth, and that is a subtle truth. It is one not very easy to state correctly. It can perhaps be most correctly stated by saying that, even if the man is the head of the house, he knows he is the figurehead. But the vulgar comic papers are so subtle and true that they are even prophetic. If you really want to know what is going to happen to the future of our democracy, do not read the modern sociological prophecies. Do not read even Mr. Wells' Utopias for this purpose, though you should certainly read them if you are fond of good honesty and good English. If you want to know what will happen, study the pages of snaps or patchy bits, as if they were the dark tablets graven with the oracle of the gods. For mean and gross as they are, in all seriousness they contain what is entirely absent from all utopias and all the sociological conjectures of our time. They contain some hint of the actual habits and manifest desires of the English people. If we are really to find out what the democracy will ultimately do with itself, we shall surely find it not in the literature which studies the people, but in the literature which the people studies. I can give two chance cases in which the common or cockney joke was a much better prophecy than the careful observations of the most cultured observer. When England was agitated, previous to the last general election, about the existence of Chinese labor, there was a distinct difference between the tone of the politicians and the tone of the populace. The politicians who disapproved of Chinese labor were most careful to explain that they did not in any sense disapprove of Chinese. According to them, it was a pure question of legal propriety of whether certain clauses in the contract of indenture were not inconsistent with their constitutional traditions. According to them, the case would have been the same if the people had been Kaffirs or Englishmen. It all sounded wonderfully enlightened and lucid. And in comparison, the popular joke looked, of course, very poor. For the popular joke against the Chinese laborers was simply that they were Chinese. It was an objection to an alien type. The popular papers were full of jibes about pigtails and yellow faces. It seemed that the liberal politicians were raising an intellectual objection to a doubtful document of state, while it seemed that the radical populace were merely roaring with idiotic laughter at the sight of a Chinaman's clothes. But the popular instinct was justified, for the vices revealed were Chinese vices. But there is another case more pleasant and more up-to-date. The popular papers always persisted in representing the new woman, or the suffragette, as an ugly woman, fat in spectacles, with bulging clothes and generally falling off a bicycle. As a matter of plain external fact, there was not a word of truth in this. The leaders of the movement of female emancipation are not at all ugly. Most of them are extraordinarily good-looking nor are they at all indifferent to art or decorative costume. Many of them are alarmingly attached to these things. Yet the popular instinct was right. Well, the popular instinct was that in this movement, rightly or wrongly, there was an element of indifference to female dignity, of a quite new willingness of women to be grotesque. These women did truly despise the pontifical quality of woman and in our streets and around our parliament we have seen the stately woman of art and culture turn into the comic woman of comic bits. 
And whether we think the exhibition justifiable or not, the prophecy of the comic papers is justified. The healthy and vulgar masses were conscious of a hidden enemy to their traditions who has now come out into the daylight that the scriptures might be fulfilled. For the two things that a healthy person hates most between heaven and hell are a woman who is not dignified and a man who is. The Fallacy of Success There has appeared in our time a particular class of books and articles which I sincerely and solemnly think may be called the silliest ever known among men. They are much more wild than the wildest romances of chivalry and much more dull than the dullest religious tract. Moreover, the romances of chivalry were at least about chivalry. The religious tracts are about religion, but these things are about nothing. They are about what is called success. On every bookstall, in every magazine, you may find works telling people how to succeed. They are books showing men how to succeed in everything. They are written by men who cannot even succeed in writing books. To begin with, of course, there is no such thing as success. Or, if you like to put it so, there is nothing that is not successful. That a thing is successful it merely means that it is. A millionaire is successful in being a millionaire, and a donkey in being a donkey. Any live man has succeeded in living, any dead man may have succeeded in committing suicide, but passing over the bad logic and bad philosophy in the phrase, we may take it as these writers do in the ordinary sense of success in obtaining money or worldly position. These writers profess to tell the ordinary man how he may succeed in his trade or speculation, how, if he is a builder, he may succeed as a builder, how, if he is a stockbroker, he may succeed as a stockbroker. They profess to show him how, if he is a grocer, he may become a sporting yachtsman, how, if he is a tenth-rate journalist, he may become a peer, and how, if he is a German Jew, he may become an Anglo-Saxon. This is a definite and business-like proposal, and I really think that the people who buy these books, if any people do buy them, have a moral if not legal right to ask for their money back. Nobody would dare to publish a book about electricity which literally told nothing about electricity. No one would dare to publish an article on botany which showed that the writer did not know which end of a plant grew in the earth. Yet our modern world is full of books about success and successful people which literally contain no kind of idea and scarcely any kind of verbal sense. It is perfectly obvious that in any decent occupation, such as bricklaying or writing books, there are only two ways, in any special sense, of succeeding. One is by doing very good work, the other is by cheating. Both are much too simple to require any literary explanation. If you are in for the high jump, either jump higher than anyone else, or manage somehow to pretend that you have done so. If you want to succeed at whist, either be a good whist player, or play with marked cards. You may want a book about jumping, you may want a book about whist, you may want a book about cheating at whist, but you cannot want a book about success, especially you cannot want a book about success such as those which you can now find scattered by the hundred about the book market. You may want to jump to play cards, 
but you do not want to read wandering statements to the effect that jumping is jumping, or that games are won by winners. If these writers, for instance, said anything about success in jumping, he would be something like this. The jumper must have a clear aim before him. He must desire definitely to jump higher than the other men who are in for the same competition. He must let no feeble feelings of mercy, sneaked from the sickening little Englander and pro-Boers, prevent him from trying to do his best. He must remember that a competition in jumping is distinctly competitive, and that, as Darwin has gloriously demonstrated, the weakest go to the wall. That is the kind of thing the book would say, and very useful it would be, no doubt if read out in a low and tense voice to a young man just about to take the high jump. Or suppose that in the course of his intellectual rambles the philosopher of success dropped upon our other case, that of playing cards. His bracing advice would run, In playing cards it is very necessary to avoid the mistake, commonly made by maudlin humanitarians and free traders, of permitting your opponent to win the game. You must have grit and snap and go, in to win. The days of idealism and superstition are over. We live in a time of science and hard common sense, and if it has now been definitely proved that in any game where two are playing, if one does not win the other will, it is all very stirring, of course, but I confess that if I were playing cards, I would rather have some decent little book which told me the rules of the game. Beyond the rules of the game, it is all a question either of talent or dishonesty, and I will undertake to provide either one or the other, which is not for me to say. Turning over a popular magazine, I find a queer and amusing example. There is an article called The Instinct That Makes People Rich. It is decorated in front with a formidable portrait of Lord Rothschild. There are many definite methods, honest and dishonest, which make people rich. The only instinct I know of which does it is that instinct which theological Christianity crudely describes as the sin of avarice. That, however, is beside the present point. I wish to quote the following exquisite paragraphs as a piece of typical advice as to how to succeed. It is so practical, it leaves so little doubt about what should be our next step. The name of Vanderbilt is synonymous with wealth gained by modern enterprise. Cornelius, the founder of the family, was the first of the great American magnates of commerce. He started as the son of a poor farmer. He ended as a millionaire twenty times over. He had the money-making instinct. He seized his opportunities, the opportunities that were given by the application of the steam engine to ocean traffic and by the birth of railway locomotion, in the wealthy but undeveloped United States of America, and consequently he amassed an immense fortune. Now it is, of course, obvious that we cannot all follow exactly in the footsteps of this great railway monarch. The precise opportunities that fell to him do not occur to us. Circumstances have changed. But although this is so, still in our own sphere and in our own circumstances, we can follow his general methods. We can seize those opportunities that are given us, and give ourselves a very fair chance of attaining riches. 
In such strange utterances we see quite clearly what is really at the bottom of all these articles and books. It is not mere business. It is not even mere cynicism. It is mysticism. The horrible mysticism of money. The writer of that passage did not really have the remotest notion of how Vanderbilt made his money, or of how anybody else is to make his. He does indeed conclude his remarks by advocating some scheme, but it has nothing in the world to do with Vanderbilt. He merely wished to prostrate himself before the mystery of a millionaire. For when we really worship anything, we love not only its clearness, but its obscurity. We exult in its very invisibility. Thus, for instance, when a man is in love with a woman, he takes special pleasure in the fact that a woman is unreasonable. Thus again, the very pious poet celebrating his creator takes pleasure in saying that God moves in a mysterious way. Now the writer of the paragraph which I have quoted does not seem to have had anything to do with the god, and I should not think, judging by his extreme unpracticality, that he ever had been really in love with a woman. The thing he does worship, Vanderbilt, he treats in exactly this mystical manner. He really revels in the fact his deity, Vanderbilt, is keeping a secret from him, and fills his soul with a sort of transport of cunning, an ecstasy of priestcraft, that he should pretend to be telling to the multitude that terrible secret which he does not know. Speaking about the instinct that makes people rich, the same writer remarks, In olden days its existence was fully understood. The Greeks enshrined it in the story of Midas of the Golden Touch. Here was a man who turned everything he laid his hands upon into gold. His life was a progress amidst riches. Out of everything that came in his way he created the precious metal. A foolish legend, said the wiseacres of the Victorian age. A truth, we say of today. We all know of such men. We are ever meeting or reading about such persons who turn everything they touch into gold. Success dogs their very footsteps. Their life's pathway leads unerringly upwards they cannot fail. Unfortunately, however, Midas could fail. He did. His path did not lead unerringly upward. He starved because whenever he touched a biscuit or a ham sandwich, it turned to gold. That was the whole point of the story, though the writer has to suppress it delicately, writing so near to a portrait of Lord Rothschild. The old fables of mankind are indeed unfathomably wise, but we must not have them expurgated in the interests of Mr. Vanderbilt. We must not have King Midas represented as an example of success. He was a failure of an unusually painful kind. Also, he had the ears of an ass. Also, like most other prominent and wealthy persons, he endeavored to conceal the fact. It was his barber, if I remember right, who had to be treated on a confidential footing with regard to this peculiarity, and his barber, instead of behaving like a go-ahead person of the succeed-at-all-cost school and trying to blackmail King Midas, went away and whispered this splendid piece of society scandal to the reeds, 
who enjoyed it enormously. It is said that they also whispered it as the wind swayed them to and fro. I look reverently at the portrait of Lord Rothschild. I read reverently about the exploits of Mr. Vanderbilt. I know that I cannot turn everything I touch to gold. Then I also know that I have never tried, having a preference for other substances such as grass and good wine. I know that these people have certainly succeeded in something, that they have certainly overcome somebody. I know that they are kings in a sense, that no men ever were kings before, that they create markets and bestride continents. Yet it always seemed to me that there is some small domestic fact that they are hiding, and I have sometimes thought I heard upon the wind the laughter and whisper of the reeds. At least let us hope that we shall all live to see these absurd books about success covered with a proper derision and neglect. They do not teach people to be successful, but they do teach people to be snobbish. They do spread a sort of evil poetry of worldliness. The Puritans are always denouncing books that inflame lust. What shall we say of books that inflame the viler passions of avarice and pride? A hundred years ago we had the ideal of the industrious apprentice. Boys were told that by thrift and work they would all become Lord Mayors. This was fallacious, but it was manly, and had a minimum of moral truth. In our society temperance will not help a poor man to enrich himself but it may help him to respect himself. Good work will not make him a rich man, but good work may make him a good workman. The industrious apprentice rose by virtues few and narrow indeed, but still virtues. But what shall we say of the gospel preached to the new industrial apprentice, the apprentice who rises not by his virtues, but avowedly by his vices? End of section 1